Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Romans chapter 10, and we're going to continue on making our way through this awesome section of Romans where Paul really deals with uh, Israel, with the Jew, and is the Lord uh, done with them? Uh, is, 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 is there still a plan in, in God's economy for his people? And on Sunday, we left off talking about Jesus as the rock. Uh, all over the scripture, we see Jesus described as the rock. He was the rock in the wilderness, the one that Moses struck that brought forth water. He was that life and that refreshment for Israel in that time uh, of the desert wanderings when things were dry and, and barren. Uh, Jesus is the foundation. Many scriptures point to Jesus as the foundation. No other can build on any other foundation other than that, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself talked about those who build their lives according to his words, build their lives on the rock. That is Jesus. Jesus is that, that cornerstone, that most important first piece that is laid in the foundation, the stone that all of the other stones are aligned to. Not only the first stone that's laid, that all the other stones are aligned to, but he's the last stone that is laid. That word for cornerstone can also be translated capstone, the last stone that that holds everything together. Uh, We didn't talk about it on Sunday, but he's our rock, our hiding place, our strong tower. Uh, Jesus is is all of these things to us, our life, our, our foundation, our refreshment, our security. He's holding everything together. But there's two sides to that rock. See, there's the rock where it's life-giving and foundational and, and all the rest, but there's the other side of the rock where, as we finished up on Sunday, we saw that for the Jew, Jesus was a rock of what? Offense. He was a rock of stumbling, Uh, what Jesus came preaching and sharing was an offense to the Jewish people. Uh, Who Jesus was, was a stumbling block to them. And so how is it that Jesus, who is all of these things, life-giving and foundational and, and, and refreshing and holding everything together in our safe place and our security, how is it that he can also be this rock of offense and a rock of, of stumbling? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. We touched on it briefly on Sunday. How is it that the Jews tripped over Jesus? Well, Paul is going to really answer that question for us tonight as we look at Romans chapter 10. How is it that Jesus was a stone of stumbling and a, a, rock, or a, uh, and a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling to the Jew? And so uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So again, Paul opens up this letter, or not this letter, but this chapter in this section where he's dealing with Israel with really just a broken heart. He opens up chapter 10 in very much the same way that he opened up chapter 9, as we saw on Sunday. Chapter 9, he opened up uh, with this idea that, man, the Jew, my fellow countrymen, his heart was so broken for them that they were lost, 
that basically he made this declaration that if there was anything that he could do to save the Jew, even if it meant laying down his own salvation, casting his own salvation aside, that, that the Jews might be saved, that he would do that if it were possible. And here, tonight, he says, man, it, my brethren, it's my heart's desire, it's my prayer to God for Israel that they may be saved. This was a reoccurring uh, just topic and theme in Paul's life. Uh, remember back when we were studying through the book of Acts, when the Lord very clearly was kind of shepherding Paul in the direction of ministering to who? The Gentiles. What did Paul keep doing? He kept on wandering back off to the Jew. And then the Jews would stone him and beat him up and throw him out of town, and, and he would have opportunity to go and, and witness to the Gentiles. His ministry, the Lord would be, all right, here you go, Paul. And then he'd find his way back in some synagogue, arguing with the, the Jews again. Paul has a heart for his lost countrymen. And we talked about it on Sunday, but it comes up here again, and it's worth just touching on one more time because Paul reiterates his love and his desire and the burden for his lost countrymen. Again, how are we doing in that department? Uh, do we have a burden? Uh, is there a burning in our heart for our lost countrymen, for our lost neighbors and our lost co-workers, the people we go to school with, the people that we hang out with. Because again, it's so easy for us to just kind of slide into this mode where we're just either indifferent or where we are just completely distracted or even where our hearts have become hardened. And we all find ourselves in those places. Man, life is busy. I get it. Uh, there's practice to run the kids to and chores to do and work to be done and you know, practice and all, all the rest. Uh, but it's important that we, we keep in mind, man, is our heart really broken? And, and it's one of those things where we can kind of just evaluate. It's good as we study through the Bible as a church family to, to just stop when we come to certain things and say, well, how am I doing in that area? Uh, a little reflection, uh, just kind of a, a little bit of taking some inventory. And if you find yourself struggling in that area, and, and I'll be honest, I struggle in that area. Sometimes I can become indifferent. I get too busy. I become hardened, even, of heart. And I need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, would you do a work in my heart again? Would you give me a, a burden for the lost? And Paul clearly has that burden, and I pray that we would also. But Paul here now gets into really kind of the reason that the Jews were tripped up over Jesus. And he says there in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So the Jewish people, boy, they are a zealous people for God. They were then, they are today. And to be zealous means really to be uh, just super enthusiastic about something, have to, have to have great energy about something. And they were very enthusiastic, they had great energy towards the Lord. And in fact, you know, Israel was called uh, the God-intoxicated people by some of her neighbors, which I thought to be kind of hilarious, honestly. But the God-intoxicated people, they were just consumed with God. And you say, well, what could possibly be wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong with being consumed with God and zealous for God? Well, Paul says it was a misplaced zeal. See, they were zealous for God, but it, it was a, a, zeal, a zeal that was not according to knowledge. It was misplaced. It was a zeal without any sort of misunderstanding. And here's the thing. You can be very, very passionate about something. You can be very excited. You can be very sincere about something. 
while at the same time being very wrong about the same thing. You can be very zealous and you can be very wrong at the same time. And there's a warning in there for us to be careful of that. Because sometimes we can be so zealous of something, even something that we're wrong about, even though we're sincere about it, boy, that we can go off the deep end. And sadly, we see that going on in our culture currently. And you need not look any further, really, than the you know, institutes of higher learning, our college campuses currently in the United States. Boy, it's filled with zealous young adults. They're zealous for all the wrong reasons, though. You see these people, these young adults, uh, who are so passionate about things like abortion, who are so passionate about things like transgenderism and LGBTQ topics, and, and you just fill in the blank, and now supporting Hamas, you see hundreds of thousands of millions of people throughout the world marching in support of Hamas and Palestine. Zealous, absolutely. Passionate, even sincere, many of them, but absolutely wrong. Completely dead wrong. And, and there's a, a danger in that, and that is what the Jews fell into. And you say, well, who is Paul really to call the Jew out on this? Well, Paul fell into that category. Remember, Paul was one who was super zealous and super wrong. Uh, that's Paul's uh, story, is that he was one who would drag Christians out of their places of worship, would drag Christians out of their homes, have them beaten, have them arrested, have them stoned to death. Remember, he held, uh, he was the one who was holding coats while the other Pharisees stoned Stephen to death. Paul was zealous, but Paul was absolutely wrong. And so Paul says this was the problem uh, with the Jew, that they were very zealous, but they were wrong. And again, the Jews there are zealous today. They are super pumped up about their religious rites and their rituals and all of their things, but they're missing it. Their zeal is not according to knowledge. They don't have a full understanding. See, they're ignorance of God's righteousness. What is it that they don't have a full understanding of? God's righteousness. They, they, they don't understand it. Now, as we look at this section, this verse, I think it's verse 3, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of law. So what is the righteousness that is being spoken of here? Uh, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. They didn't understand God's righteousness. Now, there are some translations, like the NIV, that would uh, kind of lean in the direction that this is a God-provided righteousness. This is the righteousness that God has provided for us who believe on the Lord, as Paul has spoken about through the whole beginning of Romans, that we've been justified by faith, that this God-provided uh, righteousness. And it is true that the Jew, they did not understand this God-provided righteousness. They didn't understand. Even though they should have, they had the scriptures, to, they had the prophets, they had the, all these things that pointed uh, to Jesus, the scarlet thread that we've often talked about, that really shows our need for a Savior. They should have understood the God-provided righteousness. They really should have. Uh, they had it. They, they, they knew the scriptures frontwards and backwards, and yet they missed it. And I, I thought about that. Man, I hope that we are a people who get it. I hope that we are a people who, 
who don't miss the plain truths of the word like the Jews miss the plain truth of Jesus. I pray that we would have an understanding of the scriptures, even like the Bereans. It says of the Bereans there in Acts 17 that they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Is that us? Man, I would love to just put our name in, that we would be like the Bereans, that we were searching the scriptures daily, that we would know what was true, that we would be like the sons of Issachar there in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. The sons of Issachar, it says of them that they had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They understood what was going on in their day. They were able to look at the, the, the current events that were taking place, and they were able to look at the scriptures and say, this is how it all fits together. Are we able to do that? Like here we are gathered together on a Wednesday night to study through God's word. Are we taking it in? Are we learning? Are we growing? Are we able to look at the current events on the news and say, whoa, man, things are heating up in Israel. Are we able to say, well, what does this mean for us? Are we like the sons of Issachar? Man, are we studied up to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who need not be ashamed? Do we rightly divide God's word, even as it says in 2 Timothy? 215. Uh, like the psalmist who hid God's word in his heart that he might not sin against him. So important. Uh, the Jews, they should have uh, really understood that God provided righteousness, that God gave us his righteousness, that transaction that took place on the, on the cross. But really, uh, as we look at this term that Paul's using, the, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Uh, really, they, they were ignorant of uh, the righteousness that God requires for people to be accepted by him. See, that, that, that's really the way that the text reads in the original language. Not that they missed this, this thing that Jesus came and died for them, and they missed that God provided righteousness. No, they didn't understand God's righteousness in that they thought they could earn God's love. They thought that they could earn God's favor. They didn't understand really what God's uh, standard was. God's standard was perfection. The Jew, they thought that they could, they thought that they could uh, please God by keeping the law. Uh, they thought that they were keeping the law. If you were to ask a Pharisee in Jesus' day or in Paul's day, they'd say, boy, we've kept the law. Remember when Jesus talked to the rich young ruler? He, he said, well, I've done all of these things since my youth. I've been keeping the law. But they really weren't. They couldn't. It's impossible for them. We know that to be true. But what they did was they looked on the outward only and said, well, we have this appearance of keeping the law. But even though they had the appearance of keeping the law, even if we could somehow uh, on the outside look like we were obeying God completely, what are we going to do about the inward man? What are we going to do about the heart? Because that's what God looks upon. He looks upon the heart. He looks upon the inward man. And, and Jesus said, you know, he, he really made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, you might be able to, to keep the law outwardly, but what are you going to do when you look upon a woman's lust? Well, you've committed adultery. What are you going to do if you, you hate a brother or sister? Then you've committed murder. See, the Jew didn't understand that, that God's standard was perfection in thought and in deed from birth to death without exception. And that is why when Jesus came, he was a stumbling block. He, he was an offense because Jesus came as their Savior. And you remember what Israel said at first when they found out Jesus was Savior? They said, yeah, Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid down palm fronds and they laid down their garments and they cheered him on because they thought Jesus was coming as what? A political Messiah. They thought that he was coming as a military savior to, to throw off the yoke of Rome. But when they found out that Jesus had come as a spiritual savior to forgive them of their sins, they said, sins? No, well, you, you, you must mean you came for the Gentiles, Jesus. I'm sorry, because we're the Jews, remember? We have the law. We walk in obedience. We're the good guys. And, and because they didn't think they needed a savior, they completely missed it. And they they came up with this righteousness of their own. That's what Paul says. So, so they being ignorant of God's righteousness, really not understanding God's standard, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they said, well, we've been good enough. Uh, they did not submit to the true righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, it's not about my righteousness. It's not about my ability to keep the law. Why? Because Christ has already ended the law. He's done away with the law. That's it. And, and what does that mean, that, that Christ is the end of the law? That word for end there is telos. And, and it means a designed end. The, God had a, a designed end to the law. The law was ended in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. The law could not provide righteousness. It, it could only point the way. It was a road sign to show us how to achieve Righteousness, that is to trust in Jesus, right? The law was a schoolmaster, showed us that we needed Jesus. It showed us uh, our inability to keep the law. It showed us our desperate need for a savior. Uh, and then, you know, in Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Right? Jesus would go on to say that not one jot or tittle would be removed from the law. Jot or tittle. What does that mean? The smallest of, you know, uh, marks, the, 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 the punctuation or the apostrophe, not one iota, not one little tiny scrap of God's word will pass away. Well, well it didn't pass away. It was fulfilled. And what does that mean that it was fulfilled? It was fulfilled in Jesus. How? Because Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. What were the requirements of the law? What was God's standard? Perfection. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law by living a perfect, sinless life. That's what Jesus did. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. That is, Jesus became a man. He knew what it was like to be tempted in every way that we're tempted, but he was without sin. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus fulfilled the law in fulfilling the righteous requirements, living a perfect life. But Jesus also satisfied the penalty of the law. So not only did he fulfill the requirements by living a perfect life, but then he satisfied the penalty of the law. That is, the wages of sin is death. God's wrath that was designated for you and for me was poured out on Jesus. And that's why he, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our punishment was poured out on him. And so the law is ended. The law has no power over us. Why? Because we are in Christ. That's what we talked about in chapter 7. That we're free from the law because we are in Jesus. And so now Paul is kind of hitting the nail on the head. This is what is tripping the Jews up. This is why Jesus was an offense. This is why Jesus was a stumbling stone. Because they thought they were good enough. They didn't recognize their need, really, for a Savior. And Paul goes on in verse 5. For Moses, 
writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So Paul now kind of contrasts these two types of righteousness. They, they miss the righteousness of God. And Paul says, well, there's the righteousness by the law. That is, if you want to live by the law, if you want to find life by the law, if you want to find God's approval by the law, then you must do the law completely, perfectly, all the time. You must do. You must attain. You are uh, a slave to the law. And there's no way you can, really. We know that it's an impossibility. But Paul says, just, just for argument's sake, if you want to, to live by the law, if you want to find righteousness by the law, you've got to live by it every second of every day. And then he contrasts that with righteousness by faith. And he kind of goes into this little section and describes what he means by righteousness of faith. He says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend from the abyss, that is to bring Christ down. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Now, Paul borrows this whole section uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, you guys remember Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. That's all the if and then statements. Remember when the nation of Israel had just come out of the wilderness? They crossed over the Jordan River, and now they were there in the promised land. And Moses instructed Joshua to do something very specific when they got over there. They were to rewrite the law on tablets, and they were to review the law. And so half of the nation of Israel went up about against Mount Ebal, and then half of the nation of Israel went up against Mount Gerizim. And Joshua read all of the law, all the blessings and the curses, and said, boy, if we obey the law, if we obey the Lord and we walk in all that he has for us, if we live by faith and obedience, boy, then the Lord will bless us and our crops will flourish and our livestock will do well. And everybody said, amen, yeah, woo, yes, let's do that. And then Joshua read the curses. But if you are disobedient, if you're stubborn, if you turn from the Lord, then your crops will fail, the enemies will overrun you, and eventually you'll be run uh, off of the land. And said, yeah. Well, there in verse 30, uh, Moses, uh, after he, he's made this charge to them, after the blessing and curses is really Joshua who did it uh, in obedience to Moses, uh, Moses says through Joshua, hey, listen, you guys, you have the answer, right? Don't say uh, that, you know, the message that you're to obey is in this faraway place. You have to, to, to scale the mountain to get it or you have to dive down to the abyss. You have all of the information you need to walk in obedience, basically, is what Moses was telling them there in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. It, it wasn't a faraway message. It had to be attained by, by doing, doing, doing. It was one that you already knew that was in your heart, that was in your mouth. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is applying uh, this same truth to the Jews in his day because they had the message. They had the truth. It was right there. It was, it was right in front of them. It was, it was Jesus. Uh, no one needed to really uh, ascend to heaven. Jesus came down from heaven. 
Nobody needed to uh, descend to the abyss. No one needed to bring Jesus from the dead. Jesus had already risen from the dead. He had already taught them. He had already uh, shown them miracles and proved who he was. Uh, the message of righteousness by faith, it was near for the Jew. And that's what Paul is saying. He's not something you need to attain to. Uh, it's accessible. And I love that reality because it's true for us today that, that the truth of salvation, that the truth of who God is, it's accessible. It's near to us. There's no length that we need to, to go to. Right? You don't have to uh, really... Uh, scale this spiritual mountain and achieve this spiritual altitude in order to understand the, the things of God. You don't have to dig into the deepest depth of theology to understand what it is that Jesus has done for you. We need to simply, just like them, you know it. it it's simple. You need to just believe and, and receive. The work is all done, is what Paul is telling the Jew. The work is done. All you have to do is believe and, and, and trust uh, it's not something that we attain to, even for us. And what freedom there is in that. Uh, for us in this room, boy, to know God and what he's done for us, to belong to him, there's no amount of attaining that needs to take place. Uh, we know. We just have to believe. Uh, but how is it that the Jew is to believe? And Paul tackles that, uh, starting here in verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For all whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how is it that the Jew is to know? Or how is it that they are to, to grab a hold of this? By confession by confessing and believing, right? We don't gain God's righteousness by, by working, by doing, by attaining, by scaling or digging. Uh, we attain God's righteousness by confessing and believing in the work of Jesus. So what does it mean to confess? To confess with your mouth. And this is probably a scripture that I use more than any other one. I, I reference the scripture almost every single week as I, I wrap things up because it's important that we know that it's not based on our works, but it's simply based on believing and confessing. So what does confessing mean? Well, confessing, confession carries with it the idea of agreeing with. To confess with your mouth means that you agree with. Agree with who? Well, that you agree with God. You agree with the word. That you agree with Jesus. You agree with them what? You agree with who they say Jesus is. Who God says Jesus is, who the Bible says Jesus is, who Jesus said he was, that he is God incarnate, that, that he left his throne in heaven to, to, to come and live a perfect life on earth, that he died on the cross in your place and in mine, that our sin was poured out upon him, that his righteousness might be transferred to us, that he was buried and three days later he rose from the grave. That is what we agree with. That is what we confess with our mouth, that, that he is Lord. And that's an important thing, too, also, that I want to point out for a minute. The, the confession is made for the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Uh, he is Lord over all. That if you confess with your mouth, pardon me, this is verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. See, here's the thing about this confession. That we confess him as Lord. 
To be Lord means to be supreme, to reign supreme, uh, to be uh, the boss, to pledge our obedience and our reverent worship and, and our lives, total control. And we like the idea of Jesus as our Savior. Oh, Jesus saved me from my sins. I'm so, and I am so glad. I don't mean to, to, to belittle that at all. I'm so glad that Jesus is our Savior. He is our Savior. But we like the idea of Jesus saving us from our sins a lot more than we like the idea of Jesus being Lord over our lives, being the one that we answer to, the one that we're surrendered to. Because here's the thing. My life was bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. There's a surrendering that is to take place in that transaction of confession, that we surrender to the Lord. Lord, you're Lord. You own me. Uh, I belong to you. And I'm going to walk accordance to what you say and not according to what I want to do. But So confess with your, your mouth, first of all, but also believe in your heart. So why believe in your heart? You ever think about that? Why isn't it just believe in your mind? Well, why, is it in, in, why is it not an intellectual belief? And we say, yeah, I believe. No, it's a believe in your heart. See, we can intellectually agree with facts and ideas, but it doesn't mean that we believe like the Bible says to believe, right? First of all, the idea of believing with our heart, it's an indication of relationship, right? To believe with your heart, it's more intimate than just an intellectual connection. God doesn't want just our mind. He wants our hearts as well. He wants this, or he wants this relational connection of intimacy with us. Uh, secondly, our minds, and my, our minds are kind of fickle, well, we can change our mind about this. We can change our mind about that. Well, I can say this today, and I can say that tomorrow. I always say things like, I reserve the right to change my mind. And I do, because I'm like, oh, whoops, I was wrong about that. I need to change my mind on that whole stance. You guys remember in Frozen? Now, I had two daughters, so I watched Frozen on repeat. But do you remember when, uh, I can't remember who's Anna and who's Elsa, but, you know, I think Anna froze Elsa's heart, Right? Yeah, no, it's the other way around. Sorry, thank you. We have a fan who happens to be a guy. I won't say that. So, you know, the one sister froze the other sister's mind, right? They're playing. You guys remember the story. And, and the parents took her to the, the trolls. And the troll's like, oh, man, it's a good thing that, you know, you hit her in the head because I can change that. I can change your mind. The mind can easily be changed, the troll says. But the heart is not so easily swayed. That's really, I mean, and I won't quote Disney that often, but they got it right on that one. Uh, the Lord wants our heart. You know, when you give your heart to somebody, uh, remember your, your first love. I hope you're married to them. But remember you gave your heart away the first time. You loved that person. Boy, it wasn't a connection that was easily broken. Maybe they broke your heart, but they still had a piece of it. And, and that's what the Lord wants. He wants our hearts. Uh, and then lastly, you know, even the angels believe. Right? That's what, what James says. He says, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons believe in God intellectually, right? But what Paul is talking about here, the belief is pastuo. It's more than just an intellectual idea that we believe. It's an act. Pastuo means to rest the weight of your life upon. It's where the idea of believing meets the act of doing. It's the same old analogy of sitting on a chair. You believe the chair will hold you, but it's not pastua until you plant your rump on the seat and say, all right, I trust. It's that act of trust. And that's what Paul is getting at. Hey, we're to, 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 to confess with our mouth. I want it to be known. We're to, to believe in our heart. 
And in verse 10, he kind of switches. He puts those things really in the, the right order. Uh, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, uh, one uh, confesses unto salvation. Uh, and then uh, the second part of this uh, section that I, I read, verse 11 uh, through 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's uh, a quote, again, from Isaiah that he quoted at the end of verse 9. Uh, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I like this portion of scripture because although Paul is talking about the Jew, uh, you know, he's going to talk about the Gentile here in just a second. But whoever, that's what that quote from Isaiah says. That's what Paul said at the end of chapter 9 and verse 33. That's what Paul says here in uh, chapter 10, verse 11, that God is impartial. Salvation is available to anybody who will confess and believe. Anybody, any single person, short, tall, skinny, fat, bald, hairy, rich, poor, whatever, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, your past, see, Pastor Jeremy, but you don't understand the past that I have. You don't understand what I'm going through even right now, you might say. It's not even a passing. It's something I'm struggling. Hey, confess and believe. Let the Lord do that work. See, we get this idea that we somehow need to clean ourselves up and then we can come to Jesus. Just bring your ragged, old, dirty, stinky, smelly, sinful self to the Lord. Say, I confess, I believe. And he will clean you up. He'll do a lot better job than you will, I might add. And that's it. Anyone who will come. In this, if you're in this place and you've never come to the Lord, say, man, this is in the way or that's in the way. Man, come. There's nothing. It's all irrelevant. Uh, God is impartial when it comes to salvation. If you will uh, confess and uh, believe in your heart, that's the only thing that matters. Verse 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So now Paul says, all right, uh, how are they going to find out? This is how they're going to be saved if they confess and believe. But how are they going to find out? If all who call on the name of the Lord are saved, boy, how is it that they get to the place where they'll call on the name of the Lord? Well, first, they have to hear. And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And who is going to preach unless they've been sent? See, Paul is very logical as he lays this out. Right? They need to hear in order to, to be saved. And who is going to preach it? The ones who are sent. Who are the ones who are sent? You guys. Who's, who are the ones going to preach? So it says preach. You're the preacher, preacher man. You preach it. Now, it's not just me. Uh, this, is, this is us. And again, we talked about this on Sunday. We look around at the world, right? And we see so much hurt and so much hate and so much wrong. And every single thing that we see wrong with the world is a result of sin, one way or another. And we have the solution. We have the answer to all the world's problems. We have the good news. And Paul says, man, you guys are to be sharing that, that we have an opportunity to share the gospel, that people might have an opportunity to respond. Paul says, hey, you're sent, church. You're sent. It's not just my job. Now, listen, I love to preach the gospel. 
I do. I get to do it all the time. It's a joy. It's a privilege. We are all to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but that is, again, you. At work, at school, at home, at the store. Uh, we are all to be uh, the bearer of good news. And Paul here, he quotes Isaiah 52, uh, 7, when he, he talks about uh, this, this messenger uh, bearing the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So this quote in Isaiah, if you want to put it in historical context, Isaiah was talking about the one who brought the message uh, that announced to Judah that the exile in Babylon was over. What a glorious message that he got to come and tell all the people, hey, exile is over. We're no longer captives. We're free. That is the same message that we hold, but not temporally, eternally. We have the message that says, you are no longer captives, world. You are no longer bound to your sin. All the sin that you've ever committed, you are free from, forgiven for. And that is such good news that we have to share with the world. Freedom. And you know, you might be a plumber, you might be a cop, you might be a carpenter, you might be a teacher or a nurse or a doctor or a laborer or whatever. But you belong to the Lord first. Do you know that? That you belong to the Lord before you belong to your occupation or to your role in the whatever it is. And he has opened those doors and he has given you those opportunities and he has given you those uh, relationships and influence with people that you might share Jesus with them. Now, again, I love to share the gospel. Uh, I'll never let an opportunity pass. And you get, you're like, no kidding, we come, we hear every week. Yes, I hope that's what I'm known for. I hope that's what you guys put on my gravestone. He would not shut up about Jesus. Great, that's cool, I'm okay with that. But I, I, I hope that you bring your, your neighbors and your friends here to hear the gospel. I, I really do. I mean, bring them. But know that this place, this thing that we're doing, this thing that we do on Sundays, it's not a, a place primarily where you can bring people to hear about the gospel. Do you know that? This thing that we do as we gather together, it's to edify the saints. It's to equip you guys so that you can go out and that you can share the gospel with the people that God has given you influence and relationship with. And guess what? You'll do a better job than I would have anyways. That's the truth, because the Lord has already prepared their hearts. He's already gone before. And that's the thing I want you to understand. You're not out there in the workplace kicking open doors and, you know, muscling your way in at school. If you do that, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be the most annoying person ever. But see, you're going and as you share, well, you can be sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And you go before. And, and, and he's, the Holy Spirit has already gone before you. And he's prepared hearts. And as you begin to obey that prompting, what you find is like, whoa, well, I kind of mentioned Jesus to this guy, and he's all for it. He's at this place in his life. I'm telling you, you got to give it a try. But here's the thing that I want to talk about real quick. We're running out of time. Is that uh, Paul here, he, he says uh, this quote in uh, Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. That word for beautiful it is also translated uh, flourishing. See, when we, when we walk in that obedience, when we share Jesus with other people, 
man, there is a joy that comes with it. Beautiful are those feet. It's flourishing. Sometimes, as Christians, we can feel stifled. We can feel a, a, a bit stunted uh, in our growth, honestly. You know, hey, we're here. We're, we're going through the motions. Man, we're glad to belong to the Lord. We're glad to gather together with his body. We're glad to pray and worship and take communion. We're glad to take in teachings and study them up. We're green, but there's something that is, is just missing. There's a joy, there's a passion, there's a flourishing that's absent. And that flourishing, that missing piece, is oftentimes sharing Jesus with other people. It really is. You know, the perfect analogy is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River fills the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea has an inlet but no outlet. And as a result, the Dead Sea is, well, it's dead. There's not a lot of life in the Dead Sea. Because it gets stagnant. And really what makes the Dead Sea uninhabitable is it's salty. Because that water has nowhere to go. It just sits and evaporates and gets saltier and saltier and saltier. And really what a perfect example of us. When we have all sorts of input. Boy, we're taking in the Lord here and taking in the Lord there. But we're not sharing it. Boy, we get all backed up spiritually. We get a little bit salty. But when we begin to share, when there's an inlet and an outlet, boy, things are... Good. The byproduct is a, a flourishing walk. And, you know, the Lord could have chosen any means to share the gospel with the world. Do you know that? I mean, he's God. He, he could have had angels just proclaiming the good news of the gospel all the time, just popping up, you know, wherever. You're there, just whatever. You're, hey, have you heard of Jesus in the sky? Have you heard of Jesus? He could have it just, you guys, have you seen the sphere? It's this new venue in Las Vegas where they have concerts. But the whole entire place is like this super ultra high definition screen where it's like you're immersed in this whole other reality. If you haven't seen it, I guess then you're not really going to know. But the Lord could have made the sky look like that. I mean, it would just be like this nonstop thing where we could just see that, man, Jesus is the way. Crickets or frogs. Could you imagine at night in the summertime if frogs just like were constantly with the gospel, the crickets, cricketed. He didn't do that, though. Why? Because he wants us to do it. Because when we do do it, boy, it gets our focus off of us. It gets our focus onto the Lord and onto other people. And it's important. It really, really is. It's a byproduct of a flourishing. Uh, or flourishing is a byproduct, really, of, of walking with the Lord in that way. Verse 16, and we're really going to make some tracks here. Verse 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their winds to the ends of the world. So now Paul really, uh, you know, he gets into this section where God's gracious offer of salvation has really been made to the world, to Jew, to the Gentile, to, to everybody. But, but Paul's focus here in these chapters is, is Israel. And the Jews did not respond to Jesus in Jesus' day. Jesus wept. The Jews did not respond in Paul's day. Uh, and, and still the Jews are not responding. But Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we're going to see that Paul sets up this, this argument. Well, why didn't the Jew believe? Is it because they didn't hear? Well, no, they heard, and Paul quotes Psalm 19. And Psalm 19, you'll have to check it out on your own time. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But Psalm 19 begins with this general revelation of, of creation, 
that, that we can see God's handiwork and his glory and wonder in the firmament. It goes on to say all these things, that these things proclaim God's goodness. Well, Psalm 19 goes on. It moves from general revelation that the Jews had to specific revelation, that they have been given God's word and his statutes and his law that they had heard for sure. They understood they were given general revelation. They were given specific uh, revelation. Then uh, they chose not to believe. They had the sacrificial system. They had the prophets. They had the temple. They had God's glory. They had his word. They had everything. They knew. So there's no question in that. Well, they say, well, maybe they heard, but maybe they didn't understand. And that's what Paul says in verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? And that word for no means understand. But Moses says this. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Israel heard. And uh, you say, well, well maybe they, they really didn't understand. Well, Paul uses these two Old Testament passages by Moses to, to really show that, you know, hey, look, the Gentile had no understanding. The Gentile did not have the law. The Gentile did not have the temple. The Gentile did not have the sacrifices. The Gentile did not seek the Lord at all, but the Lord sought them. He made himself known to them, and all the Gentiles were saved. The Gentiles believed. In other words, don't tell me that the Jews didn't have enough information, that they didn't understand. Uh, when you take into consideration that the Gentiles, who had nothing, believed and were saved. And not only did the Gentiles believe and were saved, but the fact that the Gentiles were saved was a fulfillment of prophecy that should point them even further to Jesus. So, so there, was, there was no way that they should not believe. And again, we come back to this place where it wasn't about information or the lack of information. Uh, remember Israel in the wilderness? And God had made himself known to them in so many miraculous ways. The plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army, the, the, the beating back the enemies in the wilderness, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of smoke by day, the manna in the morning, the water from the rock, the shoes that didn't wear. And why is it that the Jews did not enter into the promised land? Because they didn't believe. Right? Here's the thing. Belief or the lack thereof, people People don't have a hard time believing because there's not enough evidence. And that's important for us to understand. People don't believe because there's not enough evidence. People don't believe because there's a surplus of pride. Because they love their sin or because they, they, they want to be king of their own lives. Whatever it is. But uh, Paul here says, listen, and the Jews had all the information they needed to be saved. Every bit. They understood what was going on and yet they rejected because they were stubborn and they were stiff-necked people. And through, and that's the interesting thing, through their rejection of Christ, who was saved? We were. Isn't that cool? To make them jealous, that they would look in on our life, on our walk with the Lord, and be like, whoa, there they are striving to keep the law and doing all their little things and doing all this. And they're like, hey, man, we're free in the Lord. Enjoy Sabbath. I'm going to do Sabbath on Wednesday this week. You know why? Because I'm free in the Lord. I'm just going to enjoy Jesus, man. And they're like, boy, you want to see that get under somebody's skin. To the Jew, to the Jehovah's Witness, to the Mormon. You're like, hey, bro, you don't have to pell your bike around and wear a tie and a name tag. 
You don't have to knock on 500 doors in the weekend and, and hand out magazines. It's just free, free. And through that, that they would become jealous. And we'll see it take place. It'll unfold. But here's the thing, right? And again, scaling back. These chapters are really about how God is not done with the Jew. And that's how he ends it. Boy, this chapter anyways. That we have been saved as Gentiles to make them jealous. All the day long, though, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The Lord is still stretching his hands out to the Jews. His arms. He's still saying, come unto me. And he will until they come. And they will. Jesus stretches out his hands that are scarred from the nails that he took on the cross. His arms that were stretched out. And he says, come unto me. And I'll save you. Still available to the Jew this day. And that is encouraging to us. Because again, it demonstrates God's faithfulness. And you can't blow it any harder than the Jew has blown it with the Lord. Just full on to know all that they know and completely reject, and yet the Lord is still going to save them. Because he chose them, and we are his. We belong to him. No amount of faithlessness on our part can undo that. And I'm just encouraged by that. The Lord is not going to go back on his promises to us. And we can see that because he won't go back on his promises to the Jew. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into this more on Sunday. Uh, but for tonight, man, let us have a heart for the lost. We talked about a lot of things. Uh, let us be those who are, are zealous for sure, but grounded in truth. Let us be those uh, who know God's word, who, who are grounded in it. Uh, again, what, what a, a wonderful truth that Man, we don't have to strive. That the work has been done. We need to just simply believe and confess that Jesus is our Lord. And may he be our Lord. And not our Savior only. I pray that we would leave this place surrendered to Jesus. That we would be those who would go out into our communities, be bearers of the good news, and that we would flourish as a result. And uh, that we would remember, man, the Lord has been so faithful to us. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, I pray again that we would hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, that, that tonight, those things that, that were me just rambling on, that they would be forgot before we hit the door. But those things that are of you, Lord, that, that we need to, to grab a hold of, that we truly would hold on to those things and that our lives would be transformed. Lord, I pray that as we go out into our communities again, you would give us a heart for the lost, that you would give us a boldness to proclaim the good news. And that we would flourish, Lord, as we share just that freeing truth. Lord, where the, the world, where the enemy would condemn us and come against us to say that the message that we have is, is dumb or irrelevant or offensive, whatever it might be, Lord. I pray that we would just simply walk in joyful obedience in what you've called us to do. And thank you for the blessing that's tied to that. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Be with us as we go our way. We pray, Lord, that you would be with Israel. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we pray that this would be uh, something that would open up many's, uh, many Jews' eyes to, Lord, who you truly are, and that they would be saved as a result. Uh, we love you. We thank you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.